Inshallah, we're going to get started now. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin Ashraf al-Khalqi wa Sayyid al-Mursaleen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'altahu sahla wa anta taj'al al-hazna idha shi'ta sahlan sahla Rabbi shahli sadri wa yisilli amri wahlul uqdata min lisani yafqahu qawli Amma ba'd, inshallah we're going to be continuing with our third session for today in Fiqh 101 Intro to Islamic Law Technically the title for the third session is growth during the time of the companions and the successors. We are a little bit behind schedule because there's just so much material to get through. Uh, I actually offered this course. I actually offered this course uh, one time before in another community a few years ago, and we did it as a two-day intensive instead of a one-day intensive, uh, so that there could be more time to get through things. But, you know, in the interest of people's schedules, just so we don't take a full weekend, and I know it's difficult to commit this amount of time um, to a subject, we wanted to try to condense it into one day. Uh, so that's why, you know, getting through all of the material is a little bit difficult. But inshallah, we're going to do our best, and we ask Allah Azza wa Jal to put barakah in our time. Uh, Allahumma ameen. Uh, we want to stay following the flow of the book as well. So I'm going to start the session now by highlighting a few key things from the book so that you can go back and read this stuff on your own later on, inshallah. So one of the things that's in the book, it's an important page to take note of, is page 13. It tells us um, in five key points how sharia and fiqh are different. It tells us in five key points how sharia and fiqh are different. We went through... Um, a bunch of these And you could read through it At your own pace On your own Take note of the page Page 13 And read it by yourself Inshallah ta'ala The other thing That you could take note of In um, the introduc- in uh, the earlier pages Is it also does a comparison It's this lengthy comparison Between uh, man-made laws And Islamic law And it starts on page 17 And it continues on uh, until the end of the section on page uh, 27, 28. So throughout these pages, it tells us, for example, one of the sections, its title is, the Islamic Sharia is more comprehensive than man-made law. We spoke to this point in general. I clarified how is Islamic law more comprehensive. You could read it there in detail. And he'll give you some examples there. Uh, it also goes, there's a section that tells us uh, about some of, the, um, some of the objectives of Islamic law being the unity of mankind, um, the, you know, tasamuh, tolerance, ta'awun, cooperation, right? Um, freedom and what that means and self-determination, how, what that means through an Islamic lens. You can find that on those pages, inshallah. Um, the inclusion of secondary man-made laws under the subject of Islamic fiqh. It mentions some of that there. So anyway, throughout these pages, you'll find some of what I mentioned. And also, in my words, you'll find some other points that are not in the book, uh, if you go back to them. On the beginning of the next section, fiqh during the time of the Prophet Wasallam, page 31, um, it starts off by speaking a little bit about the Prophet Wasallam's error, era, and the, and the blessings of that era 
um, the, the blessings of the companions, the blessings of the presence of the Prophet Sallallahu and um, the, it speaks about the completion of religion. Um, it also speaks about you know certain time frames where there was a lot of persecution, like in the Hijra to Abyssinia, the Meccan period, and uh, Muslims needed to operate um, as a persecuted people. On page 36, he shares some of what's in the PowerPoint, the definitions of Wahi, right? Uh, the first is by addressing them directly without intermediary, as you saw in the PowerPoint. The second is by uh, Jibreel um, uh, through intermediary. Uh, the third one I mentioned was by way of dreams. All right. So, uh, and then he gives evidences from this: certain hadith, certain ayat. Um, Angel Jibreel السلام, sometimes would come in his original form, which Allah created him. Like we said, this only happened two or three times. Um, he says the first was three years after the advent of prophethood. Um, he mentions a hadith in uh, Sahih al-Bukhari for that. The second encounter took place when the Prophet was taken up to the heavens. There was a third situation. He doesn't mention it in the book. It was on the, beginning of, the night of the beginning of Revelation. As the Prophet was retreating away from Ghar Hira, the cave of Hira, and he looked up. And he saw Jibreel cover the horizons, envelop the horizons. He saw him with 600 wings, right? This is, um, this is the third time. So, and, um, uh, so this is, and then he mentions Jibreel on page 39 would take the form of a man and inform the Messenger of Allah what Allah had revealed to him, right? He mentions a hadith, like the hadith of, um, uh, the, the hadith of, uh, um, Jibreel السلام, when he came to ask the Prophet وسلم, about Islam, Iman, and Ihsan. It's a known hadith, hadith of Jibreel. And then he also mentions an example here. Sometimes it is revealed, it is on page 39, it is revealed like the ringing of a bell. And this form of revelation was the hardest upon the Prophet. وسلم. But then this state passes after I've grasped what was inspired. Other times the angel comes to me in the form of a man, talks to me, and I grasp what he says. Right. So all of these are manners of revelation that we spoke about. And on page 40, it starts speaking about the Qur'an as a source of law. The first source of law, in fact. The first source of law. So where we're at right now in the book is page 40 onwards. Everyone with me there? Alright, let's continue on with the PowerPoint. And then we'll come back to the book, inshallah. Alright, the Qur'an. There's much to speak about the virtue of the Qur'an. There's many verses. The purpose of this revelation was so that the Prophet ﷺ may cause people to emerge out of darkness and into light. كِتَابٌ أَنزَلْنَاهُ إِلَيْكَ لِتُخْرِجَ النَّاسَ مِنَ الظُّلُمَاتِ إِلَى النُّورِ We've sent down you this book so that you may cause people to emerge out of darkness and into light. In the very beginning of Surah Ibrahim, that's what it says. Another verse says, We've sent you this book in truth so that you may judge between people by which Allah has shown you. Right? So the Prophet was described as a judge. And the purpose of this Quran was for him to judge. Him to judge. And this is where his sunnah comes into play according to the other question that uh, comes according to one of the, one of the people asked earlier. Um, uh, so this is a little bit about the Qur'an. This slide here, slide 31, 
tells you how the Quran was revealed to the Prophet It goes back to three steps in its revelation. The first of these steps was it being written in the preserved tablets, al Mahfuz. And this is where everything in Qadar and divine decree was written. As the hadith mentions, the first thing Allah created was the pen. Not a pen like we imagine, right? But a pen in the sense of a writing instrument. We don't know what the... This is from Alam al-Ghayb. Allah is bringing the unseen world closer to our sensibilities. How was that? It wasn't like a pilot pen that we have. No, it wasn't paper. No, it was a writing instrument. Anyway, Allah commanded it uh, to write. So it wrote everything that will be until the day of judgment. And among what was written was al mahfuz Right? Uh, and how do we know this? The Quran says it. بَلْ هُوَ قُرْآنُ it is indeed um, an honored Qur'an in a preserved tablet. So that's the first stage of its revelation. What's the second stage of its revelation? The second stage of its revelation was it being revealed as whole to the house of honor, Baytul Izza. And the house of honor is a place in Asama'i dunya where the angels congregate to worship Allah Azza wa Jal. Our belief, we have, we have on Al-Ard, on the earth, Al-Kaaba. Right? We go worship Allah Azza wa Jal in the sanctuary of the Kaaba. Above Al-Kaaba, in the heavens above, the angels are also in a state of worship and devotion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, the, and what's the evidence of this that the Qur'an was revealed to Baytul Izza? Is, inna anzalnahu fi laylatul qadr. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we revealed the Qur'an in the night of power. How was it revealed? As whole, from beginning to end. To who? To, to the house of honor. And from the house of honor, the hadith actually details, there's a hadith that details this. Jibreel alayhi salam would bring to the Prophet ﷺ from the house of honor sets of revelation by instruction of Allah Azza wa Jal. He would communicate this to the Prophet ﷺ. So the third step of revelation, and this is what happened on Laylatul Qadr for the Prophet, is... It being revealed in intervals. In selections. Few verses, a full chapter, one verse, a part of a verse. These are all ways the Quran was revealed to the Prophet. So the first set of revelation to the Prophet was Surah Al Alaq. Full surah? No. First five verses, right? اقرأ باسم ربك الذي خلق خلق الإنسان من علق اقرأ وربك الأكرم الذي علم بالقلم علم الإنسان ما لم يعلم up to here these five verses they were the ones revealed to the Prophet ﷺ when he was in غار حراء okay so this and you know so this third step of revelation it lasted for 23 years 13 of them were in مكة 10 of them were in مدينة until the very last revelation was revealed to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم Right now, and this last revelation to the Prophet ﷺ, according to most scholars, was in Surah Al-Baqarah. It states, I don't know the verse number offhand for you, but it states, Allah says, and be conscious of a day that you'll all return to Allah, and every person will give, be given in full 
what their hands have earned, and they will not be oppressed. This is the last verse revealed to the Prophet Wasallam, And uh, it was revealed towards the very end of his lifetime. This is about the beginning and end of the Qur'an to the Prophet Wasallam. Now, of course, in our belief, we believe that the Qur'an was preserved as a source of law. It was preserved. It was not tampered with. It was not altered. It was not changed. In fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّا نَحْنُ نَزَّلْنَا ذِكْرَ وَإِنَّا لَهُ لَحَافِظُونَ We are its guardians. We've sent remembrance down. We are its guardians. That's why one of the most magnificent things that you'll find in Islam altogether is that we are gathered by one Qur'an. There is not... There are not multiple versions of the Qur'an based on sects. You know, so like oh, you have the Shia Qur'an and the Sunni Qur'an and the Mu'tazili Qur'an and the, uh, the, the Sufi Qur'an and the Salaf. No, 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 you don't have this stuff. You don't have these breakdowns. You have one Qur'an. Regardless of... If you're a Muslim, you believe in this one Qur'an. And no one in history made a substantial claim to produce another Qur'an. It's not like other religions where you have versions and, and stuff like that. Yeah, we have Qira'at, but that's a different subject. Modes of recitation, they complete each other, not conflict with each other. But that's for a different lecture. So, the Prophet ﷺ was told, لا تحرك به لسانك لتعجل به. Don't speak quickly. Don't, don't move your tongue quickly uh, as you're reciting the Qur'an. What's the story behind this? Move not your tongue with it, O Muhammad, to hasten with its recitation. What's the story behind it? The Prophet ﷺ would receive revelation. And as he was receiving it, he would be afraid that he's going to forget. So what? He would begin reciting with Jibreel ﷺ as it's being recited to him quickly, because he didn't want to forget. But then, then he was told, It is upon us to collect it in your heart and to make possible its recitation. We're going... Yeah, just recite what your heart's inspired to say, and that'll be Allah's revelation to you. Don't worry, it won't be forgotten. It won't be tempered with. Now, what are now here? Now, what is the biggest? What is our what is our biggest claim to the Quran not being tempered with? Now, you find that there is something called tawatur. Tawatur is for a volume of people to communicate something identically without contradiction and it be impossible for them to coerce one another in communicating that statement or that, that, that truth. That's what tawatur is. We have, a, we have that the Qur'an was generationally transmitted. Qur'an was generationally transmitted. What does that mean? Generationally transmitted, it was narrated from the entire generation of the companions, many different people. Many during the time of the Prophet ﷺ who had it memorized, right? Many who had it memorized, communicating to the next generation to even more people who had it memorized, right? So, this is the miracle of the Quran. The Quran was preserved in the hearts and it was preserved in scripture, in writing. And in the hearts. And the fact that you do not find conflict in narration is one of the greatest testaments that it wasn't tampered with. People preserving it in their memory identically to the letter, this is a miracle, right? So, and we're going to learn about the compilation of the Quran, how it attests to this. All right. 
When we're talking about the gradual revelation of the Qur'an, it's one of the realities. We spoke about it in detail in the class, in the course on Ulum al-Qur'an. It is one of the miracles of revelation. Look at what it says here. And it is a Qur'an which we have separated by intervals, that you may recite it to the people over a prolonged period. And we have sent it down progressively. In fact, one of the requests from the disbelievers was, why don't you reveal the Qur'an altogether one time? Why? Why in intervals? Why do you think in intervals? This is to make the Qur'an dynamic. It was dynamic in this way. It was addressing real-life situations. It was addressing the questions, the live questions that the Prophet ﷺ was receiving during his lifetime. Right? Another reason is, it had this interactive reality to it, where the Qur'an was a source to strengthen the resolve of the Prophet ﷺ. Because it was difficult, it was a momentous task for him to do what he was doing. Right? It, was, it, you know, it challenged him emotionally. Look at what the verse says here. We know that you are constrained by what they say. It's difficult for you. Right? And we already know that your breast is constrained by what they say. Right? So it was, emo- and, and another verse says, Perhaps, O Muhammad, you would kill yourself that they do not believe, that you would ruin yourself that they do not believe. So, one is, why was the Quran revealed gradually? It is to strengthen the resolve of the Prophet. Two is to simplify its memorization and the understanding of it, right? So this is, the, this is slide 33, by the way, if you're following along. Slide 33. To strengthen, to simplify its memorization. It wasn't revealed all at once, right? So that it could be easy. The companion said, we would take 10 verses at a time and learn its recitation, memorize it, and incorporate it in our lives. So doing this, by doing this, we learned knowledge and action together. A beautiful approach to the Qur'an. We learned knowledge and action together. Now, of course, the likes of Sayyidina Umar, he said, I memorized Surah Al-Baqarah in 10 years, right? He lived with it. Why 10 years? Well, it was revealed in 10 years. Right? Uh, it was revealed from the beginning of the Medani period to the end of it, right? Very beginning of, and, and the, the Medani period was 10 years. So, of course, he took 10 years to memorize it, but the point here is, when you, li- when you live with the verses of the Qur'an and witness their revelation, it creates another level of commitment. And that's why the companions were a generation that was committed to the Qur'an, fully committed to it. Because they experienced it. They observed its miracle in their lifetime. That's the second. The third thing, why was it gradually revealed? To prove the truthfulness of the Prophet ﷺ. Why? Because whenever they would come with a question, with a challenge... Allah would reveal something to respond. And they do not come to you with an argument except that we bring you the truth and the best explanation. Ah. So, to prove the truthfulness of the Prophet. The fourth reason is to prove its miraculous nature. When you have all the time you want to produce a book and edit it and then publish it, guess what? It's going to give you so much more time to um, root out any flaws, deficiencies. Um, but 
when the Quran was being revealed in real time over the span of 23 years, it left the greatest opportunity for there to be contradictions. Why? Because if Muhammad was a fraud, he would say something in the third year and then contradict himself in the seventh year and then contradict himself again in the 15th year. No human being could have the foresight to expect all circumstances that are going to come and unfold for the years to come. If he was a fraud, he would have contradicted himself. But there's no contradiction. And that's why the Quranic call is, do they not reflect on the Quran? If it had been from any other than Allah, they would have found within it much contradiction. All right. The fifth reason why it was gradually revealed was to reveal the law gradually. And we already addressed this point. Most of the Meccan ayat were about building the foundations, building iman in the hearts. And then the Madani ayat were about building, focused on law. So we already addressed at this point. What are the types of miracles in the Qur'an? If you go over Ulum Qur'an class, you'll go over this in detail. I'm not going to really spend time on it. So what are the types of miracles in the Qur'an? You're talking about uh, the balagha, uh, eloquence. You're talking about the methodology in which it was revealed. Uh, you're talking about the predictions in the Qur'an, how the Qur'an speaks about um, the future events. You're talking about the stories. Asrar al-takrar fil Qur'an, the miracle of repetition. The qasas and the stories of how they are laid out in the Qur'an. The scientific alignment, you're talking about the scientific miracles in the Qur'an. The power of recitation, how powerful the words of the Qur'an are and how they could penetrate the hearts. Ease of memorization, how it's so easy to memorize. There's not a single book on the face of the earth that could be memorized like the Qur'an. There's, not, there's, there's just not. You know, is every Muslim capable of memorizing the Qur'an? The answer, no. But you will find that it's the only book that people of all languages and ethnicities by the millions, millions, not thousands or tens of thousands. We're talking about millions of people are able to memorize it to the vowel, right? It's the only thing, it's the only book on the face of the earth that could ever be, no one could ever make a claim like this. Not in the Torah, not in the Injil. There's not a single example of this where you have um, uh, communities of people who've memorized the Qur'an in our times and throughout every time going back to the Prophet Okay, So this is a little bit about the Qur'an. This is something that we, again, this is, we're almost done with the Qur'an as a source of re revelation. Uh, we're, so now, when we're talking about the miracles of the Qur'an, they go back to two main miracles. One of them is the Qur'an, is Al-Mu'jiz Al-Khalidah, the everlasting miracle, because what? It's not limited by time. Who of us saw the moon split? Who of us saw Isa السلام, resurrect the dead? Who of us saw the sea split when Musa السلام, was being pursued by Fir'aun? No one, right? All those miracles were limited by time. But the Quran is the only miracle that we still have at our fingertips. It's the only one. The second thing is that's unique about the Quran is the miracle of the Quran is the mu'jiza is thatiyah. It's the a miracle is intrinsic. Meaning that, look at this, previous prophets were given miracles, right? And they were given revelations. The miracle, the mu'jiza would say, this prophet is truthful. His claim to prophethood, 
And now that he, I know he's truthful, I would go to his revelation and follow his revelation. But for the Quran, it's different. The Quran is the miracle itself. Meaning that if someone approached the Quran and understood its meaning, it would be enough for them to know that it could not be from the workings of man. And this is how the Quran is different than the Torah, the Injil, and all of the previous revelations before that. It's an intrinsic miracle, right? So this is how the Quran... And that's why, look at this, the greatest... The greatest spiritual capital that we have as an ummah is in the Qur'an. The most successful da'wah is the one that's centered on the Qur'an. And you find this from the Prophet ﷺ himself in the very early days of Mecca. What would he do? Oh Muhammad, you want wealth, we'll make you wealthy. Oh Muhammad, you want power, we'll make you the most powerful. What would he do? He'd recite for them ayat from the Qur'an. He'd recite for them surah Fussilat. He'd recite from them from other parts of the Qur'an. The Prophet ﷺ made it his mission to make sure the kuffar of Quraysh heard the Qur'an. Because if he, he knew if they connected with the Qur'an, they would be guided. That's what happened to the jinn, right? The jinn, what did they say? Uh, the, the verses about the jinn, what does it say? It says, قُلْ أُوحِيَ إِلَيْ أَنَّوْ اسْتَمَعْنَ فَرُوا مِنَ الْجِنِّ فَقَالُوا إِنَّا سَمِعْنَا قُرْآنًا عَجَبًا يَهْدِي لَلرُّشْدِ فَآمَنَّا بِهِ Say, the, the jinn, it was revealed to me that the jinn said, we've heard an amazing book that guides to uprightness and guides to goodness. So we followed it. We won't associate anyone with our Lord. That's how powerful an effect the Qur'an had on the jinn. That shows us, if I want my da'wah to be successful, I need the Qur'an front and center. I should never disconnect people from the Qur'an. Yeah, can I give them brochures? Can I give them books and pamphlets and any other stuff? Yeah, sure, go ahead, do that. Can I explain to them? Yeah, but don't disconnect them from the Qur'an. No, give them the Qur'an and maybe Allah will open their hearts to, for, through the Qur'an, right? So this is, this is a little bit about that. Uh, this is details, you could read it on your own, the miracle of eloquence, the, miracle, the power of recitation. We're going to go, uh, the story of Abu Bakr's exile. Uh, we mentioned this in our Sira class. Um, the compilation of the Qur'an. Look, the Prophet ﷺ was unlettered. He was illiterate. Why? Because it was part of the miracle. Part of the miracle was to make sure that no one could ever assume for a moment that Muhammad ﷺ could have carried this message on his own doing, not from Allah revealing it to him. He needed to be unlettered because he was a vehicle for this message to people. It is he who was sent among the unlettered ones, a messenger from themselves. He was unlettered like them. So the Prophet ﷺ, that was part of the miracle, him being unlettered. This being said, the Qur'an was gathered during his lifetime and after his lifetime. They say that during his lifetime, وسلم, the Qur'an was unofficially compiled. Most of it was written by various companions. Various companions. The Prophet وسلم, had 24 people who acted in the capacity as scribes. Right? 24 people. Many companions had personal copies. Some sources cite over 15 companions who had written recording of most of the Qur'an. But it was not officially compiled. Why not? The Qur'an, why wasn't it officially compiled during the time of the Prophet ﷺ? One reason was, there was no pressing need. It wasn't in danger of being lost. A number of companions had it memorized. 
That's one. Two, the Qur'an was still in the process of revelation. It was still being revealed. So how could it have been produced into a book? Couldn't be. The verses that we have, the, the order that we have of the Mus'haf is not the actual order. The Prophet would receive revelations. He would tell them, put these verses in that surah, put this surah before that surah, and so on and so forth. He, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, engineered by guidance of Allah the order of the Qur'an that we have today, from Fatiha to Nas. It's coming by the guidance of Allah, right? It's not the order of revelation, it is the order of compilation, right? The third reason is, all right, the arrangements of the verses and surahs was not chronological. Okay, we just said that. So it was not fully compiled during his lifetime, officially. There were two major compilations. The first one, during the time of Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu. And during his time, I know there's a lot of information to take in. Uh, inshallah, there's going to be a portion for questions uh, soon, bi'idhnillah. Uh, during Abu Bakr's time, one copy of the Qur'an was produced. And it sought... To what? Preserve the text of the Qur'an. Why? Because during the time of Abu Bakr anhu, many companions were dying. Why were they dying? Because there were many battles that Abu Bakr had to wage against who? One category were those who falsely claimed prophethood. Like Musaylima al-Kathab, like al-Aswad al-Ansi, and like others as well. And you could learn about this more historically. There's a lot of historical information there for you to look into. But those were called Hurub al-Ridda, the wars of apostasy. And he also had to wage wars against those who denied zakah. Okay? So that was the first compilation. It sought to preserve the text of the Qur'an. The, th the second compilation was during the time of Uthman. And that was with multiple copies. And its purpose was to unite the ummah on proper recitation of the Qur'an. That was the second compilation. Now the orders of the Khulafa are what? The orders of the Khulafa are um, Abu Bakr, Umar, and Uthman, and Ali. This period of Khilafah, what year did the Prophet ﷺ pass away in? What year? Of What Hijri year? The, the beginning of the 11th year after Hijrah. Then we had a 30-year period, 30 years, from the 11th year until about the 40th year, right, after Hijrah, where this is Asr al-Khilaf al-Rashidah, the period of the rightly guided caliphs. And this period was 30 years. The Prophet ﷺ actually foretold this. He said, The term of Khilafah that will emulate prophethood will endure for 30 years. Two of those years and some change were for Abu Bakr. Then Sayyidina Umar had 10 years and some change. Sayyidina Uthman had 12 years and some change. And Sayyidina uh, Ali had four years and some change. When you calculate all this together, it amounts to a total of 30 years. Um, and in these, so, so in these 30 years, so much happened that shaped the direction for the rest of the, for the, rest of the years, many centuries after that for the Ummah of Muhammad Again, so here you find the details. 
I'm not going to read through these details. Again, a lot of this was mentioned in the Ulum Quran class. I want us to get through more information. The wars of apostasy, there was this battle. It was called Ma'rakat al-Yamama. It was against Musaylimah. Seventy of the Hufav died. This, war, this worried Sayyidina Umar. He was saying to Abu Bakr, save the Ummah before the Qur'an is lost. Many of the Hufav are being killed in these battles. So we need to do something. And Sayyidina Abu Bakr was very worried about doing something the Prophet ﷺ didn't do. So he thought about it and pondered it and pondered it until Allah opened his heart to it. And he compiled it. He put a companion by the name of Zayd ibn Thabit in charge of it. Who's Zayd ibn Thabit? You can read right there on, the, on, the, on your slides. The primary scribe, he had the Quran memorized. He was present at the time of the Prophet Sallallahu last recitation to Jibreel in Ramadan before he died. Because the Prophet Sallallahu would review the whole Quran every Ramadan with Jibreel. What was revealed from it. Until it was the last year of his life, وسلم, he reviewed it twice with Jibreel. And Zayd ibn Thabit was present for that. So he had, um, he had uh, a mastery of the Quran. He was one of the scholars of the companions in the Quran. He made a criteria. What was the criteria for compiling the Quran? His criteria was he required at least two people besides himself who had learned the, Prophet, from the, Prophet, the verses from the Prophet وسلم, directly. right? So they had it memorized. So and three people memorized it. Two people plus Zayd ibn Thabit, right? And at least one written copy, at least one written copy needed to be found of that selection of the Qur'an that was verified by the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ had a ring and it, was, it said Muhammadun Rasulullah. He would tell the scribes what to write and then he would stamp it to make it a verified copy. All of the Qur'an was collected in this way. Three people memorized it from learning directly from the Prophet ﷺ plus one person at least having a written copy. They did this for the whole Qur'an until they got to the last two verses from Surah At-Tawbah. They did not find this by anyone except one person. Sayyidina Khuzayma bin Thabit al-Ansari. Sayyidina Khuzayma bin Thabit al-Ansari was the only one who had a written copy. He wasn't the only one to hear these last two verses, of course. But... Um, and Sayyidina Khuzayma bin Thabit al-Ansari, there's an interesting story um, behind him. Uh, what's the story? During the time of the Prophet Sallallahu um, there, <laughs> uh, there was this Bedouin Arab uh, uh, who um, sold this camel to the Prophet Sallallahu And um, after he sold it to the Prophet Sallallahu the Prophet went to go get the money for the Bedouin. In this time... The Bedouin found someone who was willing to pay more for the camel. So what did he do? He went, he rescinded his sale. He made it as though he didn't sell it. So what? The Prophet ﷺ came back with the money and he said, I never sold it to you. So the Prophet ﷺ said, yes, you did. The Bedouin Arab was what? Again, he's dealing with the Prophet, but you see, a human being, right? He's thinking of money. I sold it. I found someone to buy it for more. So then the Prophet ﷺ asked, is there anyone who can witness? So then Khuzayn ibn Thabit said, I witness, O Rasulullah. So the Bedouin Arab was forced and he got so annoyed and frustrated. He said, go ahead, take the camel. Right? And so the Prophet ﷺ went to Khuzayn and he said to him, how did you witness when I know you weren't there? Why did you say you witnessed? 
So he said, I trust you with something more critical than this. And that is the news from the heavens. Am I not going to believe you in the sail over a camel? So then the Prophet ﷺ smiled and he said to him, Whoever Huzayma witnesses for, it is enough of a testimony. Right? So he's the one who brought this. He's, that's why we call him Dushahadatain. His testimony is worth twice, double, by the, by the testimony of the Prophet. ﷺ. So this is the first compilation. Now, of course, I am abridging for you a massive amount of information, right? You learn this in detail in Ulum Qur'an. Inshallah, soon we'll have the series that we have on Ulum Al-Qur'an published on the website. We had it recorded um, when we taught it about, I, I think it's almost a year ago. Um, but we'll have that published soon for you to go back to this stuff in detail. That was the first compilation. The second compilation was for a different reason. It was when Islam began to spread. The golden era of Islam and Islamic expansion is during the time periods of who? Umar and Uthman. Right? During the time of Uthman, Islam started spreading to far areas. Some of these areas were not Arabs. Among the areas that we're, that we're talking about are Armenia, Azerbaijan, and when these areas came into Islam, people began reciting the Qur'an and they did not know how to properly recite it because they were not Arabs. And the Qur'an, the way it was written, was not like how it is now. It was not with the dots, it wasn't with the markings, diacritic marks and all that. And this is what we speak about historically. So, Sayyidina Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman witnessed some people reciting the Qur'an um, in different ways, and they began disputing with one another. So what happened? Sayyidina Hudayfa came rushing to Sayyidina Uthman, and he said to him, أدرك هذه الأمة قبل أن يختلفوا في كتاب ربهم Save this ummah before they start disputing in the revelation from Allah. So what happened? Sayyidina Uthman ordered copies of the Qur'an to be produced, and he sent a copy to each province, and he sent with each copy a teacher. And these teachers began teaching the people proper Qur'anic recitation. So you see, there was a reason to compile it a second time, right? Now we're going to focus on producing it into a unified text that causes people to be able to recite the Qur'an properly. And this was the beginning of what we have here. So look. What's the difference between the two compilations? Abu Bakr's compilation was in response to the large number of deaths of the Huffal. Uthman's compilation was in response to the inauthentic recitations of the newcomers into Islam. Abu Bakr relied on one individual. Uthman created a committee. Abu Bakr ordered one mushaf to be made. Uthman ordered several copies to be made. Since Abu Bakr didn't face the problem of inauthentic recitation, he didn't have to take the step that Uthman take, which is what? Destroy all other copies. He unified the ummah and he destroyed all the other copies, that personal copies that people had of the Qur'an so that no one disputes about the text of the Qur'an. Uthman ordered the rewriting of the Mus'haf according to the writing style of Quraysh because it was revealed uh, to the Prophet ﷺ who was from Quraysh. And Abu Bakr compiled it from the date palm, leaves, wood, and hearts of people. Now, that's pretty much what we have about the Qur'an as a source of legislation. And more details would be found, again, in a class on Ulum Al-Qur'an. Um, 
Now, if you look through the book, you will find information that is close to what I told you. Now, if you look at page 45, he addresses the question, how did Allah preserve his book? We spoke about that. And you could find more details. Um, it tells you why the Qur'an was revealed gradually. Look at page 47. Why was the Qur'an revealed gradually? You will find the answers to that there. Strengthening the heart of the Prophet um, the gradual presentation of judgments, treating the incidents and problems that arose during the time of revelation. All of these are things we discussed. So that's on page 47. And I gave you even more reasons than that um, uh, as well. Uh, and then um, in terms of uh, the, the gradual revelation of the Qur'an, this was also in the gradual legislation. What? Sometimes the gradual legislation would be about one ruling in particular or about rulings in general. Gradual legislation. Like with what? If you look in this period, he gives you a golden example. Go on. If you go to, if you, if you move on, going over the gradual legislation of one ruling on page 56, he gives us a good example with alcohol. He addresses the verses um, that speak about alcohol in the Quran. Look, he says, and from the fruits of the palm trees and grapevines, you take intoxicant and good provision. This is telling us the, the good and the bad that's in alcohol. Still no prohibition yet. And then the second verse is, what? They ask you about alcohol. Say that there's benefits in it and harm. But their harms are greater than their benefits. Still no prohibition. Um, the next one is, on the bottom of the page 56, says, O oh, you who believe, don't come near prayers while intoxicated. This is the third verse revealed in the gradual prohibition of alcohol. Then the fourth one is what? This is where the outright prohibition came. O oh, you who have believed, indeed, intoxicants, gambling, sacrificing on stone altars, and uh, to other than Allah, and divining arrows are but defilement from the work of the shaitan. Rijsun min amal shaitan Innamal khamru wal maysir wal ansab. Rijsun min amal shaitan Fajtanibu. Then avoid it. This is where the outright prohibition, this is a primary example that teaches us about how gradual revelation occurred. Right? There were other things in Islam that um, took much later on to prohibit. Like we find in the verses on, 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 on interest, in riba, right? in hajjat al-wada' and the farewell pilgrimage. The Prophet ﷺ states, Indeed, all forms of interest are now put under my feet here, disregarded and discarded. And the first one, uh, the first, the first um, uh, uh, of these debts that are owed due to interest that I put aside are the uh, debts owed to my uncle Abbas. They are not due anymore because they are in interest, and interest is haram. That came towards the very end of the life of the Prophet. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, where there was a strong stance against interest and riba, right? Uh, so, so all of these pages here, page 56, 57, 58, and the ones prece preceding it, it gives you a good idea of how the Qur'an 
was communicated during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. In terms of its revelation and in terms of its legislation. We said we have 6,000 plus verses in the Qur'an. You know how many of them are directly relating to ahkam? About 10%. They say ayat al-ahkam are around 500 verses in the Qur'an. The verses pertaining to law. Some of them state more numbers than this. But about 10% of the Qur'an is relating to legislation. Most of the Qur'an is about general guidelines, principles. Not about matters of law. There are some matters of law defined in it. So this is how legislation was communicated. That's why we need an explanation. You know, one of the, and this is one of the principles that we take here. One of the principles that we take is, um, they mention this in Usul al-Fiqh. They say, Sorry, they say that bayan that for the clarification to be delayed beyond the time of need is not allowable. It will not make sense. What does this mean? What is this talking about? If Allah tells us to do something and He doesn't tell us how to do it, then logically this would be deficient. How could you tell me to do something and then not tell me how to do it? How could you tell me to do something and then not explain to me how to do it? You will not find... A single verse in the Qur'an that tells you five daily prayers. It describes time frames of prayer. In the early part of the day and the later part of the day. right? It mentions um, there is this concept of prayers and then there is this middle prayer. right? It will mention general things. Aqimus salah, established prayers. But then there is no explanation. How do, okay, you told me to establish prayers. Ya Allah, how should I do it? The answer is, Sallu kama yusalli. Pray as you see me pray. So someone who wants to deny the sunnah is someone who wants to demolish Islam. That's why they say someone who categorically denies the sunnah is someone who leaves the folds of Islam. You can't be Muslim and deny the sunnah. You cannot be Muslim and deny the sunnah. Because what it makes so many verses in the Quran inactionable. I cannot act upon them. What am I going to do? Non-actionable. Right? Um, so like what? Um... We gave example in Salah. There's this verse in the Quran. It's called the verse of Wudu. This verse of Wudu is in Surah Al-Ma'idah. Verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. What does it say? يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا قُمْتُمْ إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ فَاغْسِلُوا وُجُوهَكُمْ وَأَيْدِيَكُمْ إِلَى الْمَرَافِقِ وَامْسَحُوا بِرْؤُوسِكُمْ وَأَرْجُوا لَكُمْ إِلَى الْكَعْبَيْنِ The end of the verse it tells us about the obligatory actions of Wudu. It doesn't tell us about the full scope of it. It doesn't tell, tell us what invalidates will do, what is recommended. It doesn't tell us explicitly how to start and how to end. It doesn't say any of this. What am I supposed to do? Right? What am I supposed to do? That's where this ruling comes, right? Um, this is a principle in Usul al-Fiqh. Another example of how this is used and dispensed is, for example, about Ayat al-Hijab, Right? Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says وَلَا يُبْدِينَ زِينَتَهُنَّ إِلَّا مَا ظَهَرَ مِنْهَا And they are not to expose um, their zina and their beauty except that which appears thereof. What on earth does that mean? If I'm someone who disbelieves in the sunnah, I would not know what, what, what do you mean what appears thereof? What appears thereof? What appears thereof? I need explanation. Allah says this to me. Where is the clarification? It's the sunnah of the Prophet 
That's why one of the bogus arguments, some of the people, uh, they they want to... um, they, they, try, they, they, they believe in what we call zamaniyat al-nusus, right? This hijab thing was an Arab culture thing, right? It was during the time of the Prophet Wasallam, and that was the Arab culture, and there's nothing in Islam that obligates hijab. And of course, the falsehood in this is we have a command. We have a, we, we have a prohibition. لا يبدين زينتهن They may not expose their beauty. Allah is prohibiting something. This is a nahi. And, you know, prohibition is to make something, uh, you, know, uh, you know, inallowable, to disallow something, to disallow us, uh, something. So then where is the clarification? If I say there's no clarification, I'm going to say there, that Allah's words are deficient because he's telling me things that cannot be made sense of. It's going to be subject to my whim, right? Well, what does it mean? I don't know. I'm going to start guessing. You say this, you say that, someone else says that, right? But Allah is telling me something. How on earth can I have the audacity to say that Allah's words are limited by time and scope to some Arab culture thing that was of that time? That's why you find the consensus of Islamic scholarship is hijab is obligatory. Now what defines that, that's a detailed discussion. But in principle, hijab is obligatory. Those claims that hijab is not is going against consensus of the ummah. Right, So that's a little bit about how the Qur'an was communicated. You see, the Qur'an has general terms in it that need explanation. We explain it, the words by the Prophet ﷺ, and we explain it also through language, but it needs, we explain it through the analogy and through the, 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 the scholarly reasoning and so on and so forth, but it needs explanation. The Prophet ﷺ, that's why he would interpret for them the Qur'an. He was the first interpreter of the Qur'an. He did tafsir of the Qur'an. And that's how it was communicated during his lifetime. So that's the end of this section about the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, the, sorry, the, that's the end of this section on the Qur'an and everything that pertains to it. And the next section begins with the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, just to keep a consistent break in everything... Um, I know that we're still a little bit behind. We need to speed up, inshallah. The next things are going to be quicker, inshallah. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to take our five-minute break here, and we'll pause, inshallah, and then we'll continue um, with the next section after that. Jazakumullah khair. Barakallah feekum.